a couple things before we kind of dive in. Number one, you may have got this on your way in, and this is just some of the needs in our church. And uh, so we're trying to partner some of the people who have resources and some of the people who have needs and kind of make those mesh. And so uh, occasionally we're going to be giving out a sheet like this to kind of list some of those things. Feel free to look over it. No big deal. We just want to be a bigger, bigger blessing to our community. Uh, also, small group signups start next week, so you'll see that um, as you head in and head out next Sunday. And then next Sunday is the finale of this You, Me, We series, and we've got some great stuff planned, so do not miss it. I want to see if uh, we all had similar childhoods, okay? Um, a little playground rhyme. Uh, join me if you know it. Katie and Tommy sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes, then comes baby in the baby carriage, right? So we grew up at the same school. That's great. Um, so this was the first way of the ways I started to understand the timeline for happily ever after, right? It was first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby. Uh, that's what I thought. But life's a little messier than that, right? Sometimes it's love, baby, marriage. Sometimes it's love, heartbreak, then another heartbreak. Sometimes it's baby, divorce, then love again, but you're not, now you're not so sure about this whole marriage thing. Us as kids on the playground, we were right, and we were also so wrong because we hadn't lived yet. We didn't understand the depths of our hearts, nor the depths of our heartbreaks. But God does, and God is for you. No matter what is in your past, no matter what has happened to you, no matter if you're single, or if you're married, or if you're divorced, God is for you, God loves you, God isn't mad at you. God's posture towards you isn't disappointment, it's love. It always has been, it always will be. God wants an ever-growing relationship with you. Now, when it comes to dating, attraction, uh, we've gone a bit awry. Okay, I read a survey asking women in America if they had a choice between being incredibly beautiful or incredibly smart. Uh, the overwhelming majority said they would be beautiful. Uh, a husband who was, you know, mad at his wife and lashed out in anger, said some things he shouldn't have said, but he said, how can you be so pretty and yet so dumb? And his wife qu quickly replied, I am pretty so that you will love me. I am dumb so that I will love you. Uh, this unhealthy focus that we have on our appearance, uh, outward appearance, uh, affects us in more ways than we know. It affects us predominantly in the dating phase, right? Uh, in looking and in, in being attracted to, to uh, the, uh, the other person. And um, this is a cover from a, a magazine back in the, the early 2000s, and it's Michelle Pfeiffer. And Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, famous actress, you know, beautiful woman, you know, and uh, uh, it says what Michelle Pfeiffer needs, and then if you just open the backside of that page, it says absolutely nothing. Now, a reporter got hold of the touch-up artist, Bill, for this magazine cover, and it turns out Michelle Pfeiffer did need something. Okay, here's the breakdown of the touch-up work. Clean up complexion, soften eye lines, soften smile line, add color to lips, trim chin, remove necks, uh, lines, soften lines under earlobes, add highlights to earrings, add blush to cheek, clean up neckline, remove stray hair, remove hair strands on dress, adjust color. It goes on and on. $1,500 worth of Photoshop to help Michelle Pfeiffer look better. 
See, we have too long based our standards on attraction and dating on something that isn't even reality. First uh, Peter 3 says this. You should not, your beauty should not come from adornment, from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, of, which is of great worth in God's sight. I can't tell Peter was writing this 2,000 years ago or two years ago. He wasn't telling women to avoid getting dressed up. There's nothing wrong with that. He was saying that your character will take you farther than your cosmetics. Your character will take you farther than your cosmetics. Cultivate a beauty uh, and a, a gracious lifestyle in, uh, of integrity above anything else. Uh, the women on TV, the women in magazines, it's just not, they're not real. Those images of women, uh, that's not what they look like in real life. And this is why magazines like Us Weekly have this little section called They're Just Like Us. And it's this section where paparazzi have taken pictures of celebrities doing normal things. So they walk their dogs. Uh, they go shopping at the grocery store. And it's all these women who, and, and men who uh, are just doing normal stuff and they're caught candidly. And they look just like us because they are. Uh, and paparazzis get paid thousands and thousands of dollars to catch them, not when they're, you know, like this on the red carpet, but when they're normal and they're dressed normal and they're not expecting a picture. It's the real them. It comforts people who are often all too aware of our own insecurities and shortcomings for our physical flaws. And ladies will often dream of finding men who are like those in romantic movies. Okay? Edward Cullen would have never done that to Bella. Well, Edward Cullen was a fictional vampire, okay, who was in love with a human. Okay, it's not real. No guys are like that. The actors who play those guys are not like that. Edward Pattinson is not like that. Uh, so if you would like to hold someone to an impossible standard, you can, but I suggest living in the real world instead. Now, one of the great dangers of modern dating is the tendency to adopt a consumer mentality rather than a companion mentality. Uh, what I mean by this is like when we, we make a list of the kind of person we want to marry. I want him to be tall, but not too tall. Handsome, funny, charming, great job, solid income, very sensitive and strong, confident, but also caring, and he should, you know, be tore up from the floor up, okay? Six-pack abs. Or, well, I want her to be shorter than me with these specific measurements. She needs to know how to have a good time. She needs to be into sports, running, hiking, traveling, saving money, and she's got to be into me. But this mentality causes problems from the start. You see, what's happening is you're trying to customize your order to, to get what you think is best for you. This is exactly how you order a burger or make a playlist. But this is not how you date. Why? Because we're looking for a person to love, not a product to consume. We're looking for a partner in life, not something to listen to for 30 minutes. Not something that's going to quench the hunger for a couple of hours. In their book called Relationships, Les and Leslie Parrott say the following. They say, if you try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on your own, all your relationships will become an attempt to complete yourself. When we enter romantic relationships looking to complete our identity, the relationship becomes a very selfish thing and it ends in disaster. 
If you're dating to complete yourself, it's going to end in heartache. If you're dating because it's fun, it'll end in heartache. If you're dating for your own sexual gratification, it'll end in heartache for you, and also you'll be leaving a trail of brokenness behind you. It's not honoring to God. It's not honoring to your future spouse. Look at what Proverbs 27 says. A prudent person foresees the danger ahead and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Take precautions because our hearts are too precious. It's too, it's too valuable of a thing to give away flippantly. It matters. It's heavy. Uh, I read a story of a minister who was preparing to preach a sermon on sex. And his wife was a little surprised and kind of embarrassed by the topic. And she said, honey, sex is a private matter. Okay, maybe pick something else. Why don't you preach that sermon that you've been working on about water skiing? You've been wanting to do that. And after a bit of convincing, you know, he, he was convinced that, that the water skiing sermon was the way to go. Now, on the Sunday morning of that sermon, the wife was sick. So she stayed home. So the husband gets to church, and he starts study, and he knows she's not coming, so he goes, I'm going to do the sex sermon. And he preached it. And uh, that afternoon, some of the, the wife's friends uh, from the church go and visit the wife because she hasn't been feeling so good. And they raved about the pastor's sermon. They said, it was great. He spoke with such vigor this morning. The other lady agreed. You know, he was so eloquent. There was so much enthusiasm. And the minister's wife was puzzled. She said, I don't understand. Vigor? enthusiasm? He's only done it twice, once at the lake and once at the river, and he hurt himself both times. <laughs> now, God designed sex and marriage, and they're good. Uh, let's start with the beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 1. It says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, who he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So God creates us in his likeness and his image, and his first words that are recorded to them is, be fruitful and multiply, which is another way of saying, go have sex. Then, if you were to continue reading, he says that I've given you all the plants and the animals, uh, I've given dominion over there, so go eat those. So the two first things that God says to humanity is go have sex and then go have something to eat afterwards. Our starting point is this. Sex is not bad. God created it. God designed it. See, God made us as physical beings. God made us as spiritual beings. God made us as emotional beings. And God made us as sexual beings. This is biblical truth. Now, the church in general has focused so much on the dangers of sex that we completely miss the beauty of the intimate life that God has showed us and shared with us in the covenant of marriage. The Bible talks quite a bit about it. But because of the dangers of sex, we've, that's kind of all we've heard. Uh, sex is dirty and bad. And that's kind of the vibe we get often in the church. And rather, rather than going into all the negative impacts and difficulties that we can have uh, in regard to sexual sin, that's a sermon for another time. I'd rather hold up the biblical portrait of marriage, the biblical portrait of union through sex, and uh, dig into what the Bible has to say about that. Now, Song of Solomon is this uh, ancient uh, book of the Bible written by a husband and a wife, and sometimes the wife is speaking, sometimes the husband is speaking, and it's this uh, alluring, erotic story uh, filled with poetry and song. And if you were an ancient Hebrew, you had to reach a certain age before you were allowed to read it because of the erotic nature of it. 
And so we're going to read a little bit of chapter 7, okay? So just loosen up, loosen up your top buttons here. It's going to get hot in her real fast. Uh, it says this, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. This guy's good. He's sipping blended wine out of her belly button, okay? Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. I don't know what that means. Uh, verse 3, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. He likes her breast, and he likes that there are two of them, okay? <laughs> verse 4, your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath. Rabim, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. That's a compliment I've never said to my wife, you know. Babe, your nose, it's like the Tower of Lebanon looking onward towards Damascus. Verse 5, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. That's in the Bible? Um, may your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Married men, notice that Solomon here is not in a hurry, okay? He gazed at her beauty, and then he went step by step, slowly praising her. He took his time. He started from the bottom, went to her feet, and worked his way up, doling out praise in a measured, poetic fashion. He didn't say, ooh, your eyes, they're, they're really pretty, and those breasts, you know. That's not what he says. For some of you, married couples, you might feel like roommates and less like lovers. For some of you, you might feel like partners in raising your kids, but not lovers. And as noble as raising kids together is, intimacy, sex, is a key part of marriage, a beautiful part of marriage. Well, the fire just went out. It's not there anymore. That's because you haven't stoked it. Fires go out when you're not paying attention, if you're not stoking it constantly. I think every married couple, no matter man or woman or how long you've been married, you want a healthy, satisfying sexual life together. It's like this one couple, the old couple um, in their 80s, and they were at a, at a coffee shop, and uh, the old guy works, you know, goes to his wife and says, do you remember that time 50 years ago when we went behind this building, and we leaned up against that back fence, and we, you know, and she goes, yes, I remember it well. And the old guy kind of got a twinkle in his eye. He says, how about we take a stroll around the back, you know, just for old time's sake. She's like, oh, Charlie, you old devil, you. <laughs> so they go. And they're kind of looking around. They're kind of sneaking out. There's a police officer across the street. He sees these old guys going, what, what's going on over here? So he's, I want to see what they're up to. So he follows them. And right when the guy's about ready to make his move on this fence, uh, they, just, they just go at it. And they're moving fast. And there's loud shouts. And uh, they are moving and grooving. And the, old, and the police officer's like, I got to go find out what's happening here. So they kind of collapse and fall on the floor. And he, the police officer goes, excuse me, sir, like, I, 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 I got to admit, I, I saw what just took place, and I have to ask, like, the passion. How did you keep this so much for so long? How did you keep the fire going? How is it so electric between you two? And the old guy's kind of barely catching his breath, barely able to speak. And he says, 
50 years ago, that fence wasn't an electric fence. <laughs> That's one way to keep the passion alive. Just so we're clear, in marriage, you should be having sex with each other, okay? Statistics show that for 80% of women, they don't really need or want sex as much as a man. So that means, for most women, sex is not something where you're like, yes, I just can't wait to go home and have sex with my husband. Uh, for most, it requires sacrifice. And in sacrifice, even in sacrifice, you can have a good time. You can, it can bring you together. In researching this week, I read David Snarch's book, Intimacy and Desire. David is a, a sex therapist, and he makes the point that in every relationship, there is a high-desire partner and a lower-desire partner. And he assures us that this is very normal. Some of you are like, okay, that's normal. Uh, and sometimes the high-desire partner is the woman. Often it's the man. And the high-desire partner may feel that the lower-desire partner isn't into them enough, isn't giving enough. Uh, the low-desire partner wonders why everything for the other person comes down to sex. And couples become frustrated with each other. They begin to question themselves. What's wrong with us? What's our problem? What's, what's up with our relationship? We're too pooped to whoop. Now, clearly, this difference in levels of desire demands compromise and sacrifice on both sides. It will require agape love, self-sacrificing love, the kind of love that we're called to in the scriptures that seeks to bless the others. And so for the lower desire partner, that may mean making love more often uh, than desired. And for the higher desire partner, it might be less often than you desire. Sacrificial love is this beautiful dance that draws us together in our intimate life. Intimacy is part of the mission of marriage, and we have to pursue each other. We talked about dating earlier. Dating isn't just for before you're married. You should continue to date your spouse. Make effort. Marriages don't run on cruise control. They break down. Uh, falling in love is easy. Staying in love takes work. Married couples, here's how to spice it up. We need affection. Affection is not sex. Loving gestures, holding hands, saying I love you, compliments, memories together, flowers. These are the things that marriage needs. Affection is not sex, but sex can be the result of affection. It just shouldn't be the motivation. You're not doing these nice things so that it's a really good night. No, affection and sacrificial action are the water and sunlight of marriages. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, we would have these Christmas parties, and it was white elephant gift, and everyone would bring lame stuff. And I would always end up with something weird. And one year, I ended up with a Bob Ross uh, Chia Pet, okay? Bob Ross, you know, the— the happy little tree painter from, you know, PBS Channel 18. And, uh, and so they're all like, ah, you know, were you just going to throw that away? And I was like, no, I'm going the other way on this. So I, I, I put it in my office, and I took care of Bob. Uh, I, I, I put the Chia Pet stuff there. I, I watered it daily, put it by the sun. And what I noticed is only the side of his hair that was closest to the window reaching out for the sun. So then I flipped Bob, and then now that side started to grow, and then this hair on the opposite side started to go over his head, reaching out towards the light. And Bob's got this funky, crazy hairstyle, and that's, that's 
It's the plant longing for sunlight, reaching out for it. You take away water and sunlight from any plant and it will not grow, it will wither. And if you take away affection and intentional loving actions from marriage, you're starving it. It will die. Sex is a good thing, but it is not everything. Sex is a good thing, but it's not everything. I want to invite knowing the band to come up. I'll close with this. Sex is meant for healthy relationship, but it shouldn't be the basis of any relationship. If your relationship is built on sex, it's not strong. Some of us have deep woundedness when it comes to sex. Jesus holds you, and he knows your pain. Some of us have addictions when it comes to sex, and Jesus holds you and can bring you freedom. Some of us have held up sex as being everything and our thought life is consumed with it. And we're like, well, I can't break this habit. I can't get out of it. I can't stop thinking those thoughts. Those memories are still there. They're, those memories, are, they're like ghosts that I now have brought into this marriage. What's the answer? I can't overcome this. I've tried. Romans 8. Oh, this is so good. It says this, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This passage of scripture is saying that God raised Jesus from the dead and you. And we'll say, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. I believe that God will rise all of us from the dead. And I'll have eternity with him. And we believe that. We say amen. But then when it comes to sex, how can you believe that God raised a dead body, but he can't manage the living one? He can't help you overcome the, the lust and struggles within you. See, you can overcome. You can move from cosmetics to character. You can move from tender love to tender love. You can move from horny to healthy. You can move from roommates to lovers. And it's going to take work. It'll take the renewing of our hearts and minds. But it is possible because the same spirit who rose Christ from the dead lives in you, lives in me. And God gives us the strength to overcome all this stuff. When it comes to sex, it's like we have, we, oh God, I give you my whole self. I give, you, I give you my life. And many of us maybe prayed a prayer when we were young or recommitted our lives or were baptized when we were older. And, and we, we, it's like we give everything to God, but it's like we have this one hidden room, this one closet that, that we don't allow God. And God says, listen, there's no place you can go where I'm not there. And my response to you isn't disappointment or vengeance or judgment. My response to you is love and grace and open arms. That's our God who desires us not to put so much emphasis on sex. Not to think that it's the answer to everything. But God can heal our woundedness when it comes to this. And God wants to light the fire again in our marriages light the fire that we have for him and the fire that we have for our spouse. That's the beauty of the two becoming one. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gift of marriage, for what it shows us about you, what it shows us about us. And God, I pray that for those of us in this place who, man, we just have some brokenness in regards to our sexuality. I pray, God, that you would bring healing. 
that you would bring peace. For those of us who have held up sex to be everything, I pray, God, that that would be replaced. God, I pray that you would, for those of us who are in marriages who are struggling, I pray, God, that that a greater desire for, for you and a greater desire for one another would help this, their families to flourish. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.